This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for May 25th, 2017, the glowing orb edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura here in the D.C. studio with John Face the Nation Dickerson. Hello, John. Hello, David. How are you? I'm well. I have a cold glass of water in my left hand, which is uh, totally unexpected. And uh, it's the simple pleasures that uh, make the day better. You do look well hydrated or on your way to being well hydrated. And from her attic, her attic, her, her, attic, her garret, her, her garret attic in New redoubt. Haven. Her it's hideout. Like it's true. It's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. On this week's Gabfest, wow! It was. It's every. I thought it was going to be a sort of slow news week, and then it never is. First, the double whammy of the president's budget and the CBO score of the congressional health bill. We'll all fold that together, and we'll even fold in a secret third piece mm-hmm. to that. But I'm not going to tell you about it yet. Then. The president's strange and surprisingly gaff-free foreign trip. Then the huge racial gerrymandering case at the Supreme Court. Emily's going to go deep on that one. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter and a Slate Plus topic. The president introduced his budget this week, and it's a doozy, a fantasy novel that marries enormous tax cuts for rich people to ginormous cuts to programs that help the poor to delusional economic forecasting to some of the most industrious accounting chicanery since Bernie Madoff. If you were a liberal, this budget would savage almost everything you like in the federal government. There are huge cuts to EPA, to Medicaid, to Social Security, to the State Department, to AIDS drugs for the global poor, to PBS, to NEA, to NEH, to Planned Parenthood, to legal services, to LIHEAP. It's a really tough budget. And right on the heels of that budget came the long-awaited CBO score of the new American Healthcare. Act bill that the House passed. And guess what? It is still pretty lousy, that score. It will cause 23 million people to lose insurance, according to CBO, including 14 million in the first year alone. So, Emily, the president's budget will not become law. Nothing like it will become law. So, does it matter? Does all the kind of hyperventilating that I just did matter? Well, in order for it not to become law, people have to hyperventilate, right? Because otherwise, it possibly could in some universe. But yeah, I guess it it matters as a piece of performance art. It matters because it suggests that 
the real hardline conservatives are in control of the budgetary process in the White House. And it demonstrates the president's values, whether those values are that he's not paying attention and just outsource this to them and doesn't really care, or that this is the kind of federal government that he wants. Actually, John, that's a good segue, which is why did this budget end up being so conservative? The president himself is not that conservative. He likes federal spending. He doesn't mind federal spending. He doesn't really care about Planned Parenthood. Why does it end up being the creature of the Freedom Caucus? It's a trap. That's what it is. I think there's two important things that I take away, although there's, you know, we should um, spend a little time on just how the numbers are crazy and why they're crazy and all that. But the two biggest things about it for me are, one, as a political document, it's a trap for Republicans. Because when the, when the Republicans in Congress ultimately, as they will, ignore this budget, the White House has prepared, the president has prepared to be able to then say, you know, we had a budget that, that was going to balance in 10 years and we were going to stop all of this wasteful federal spending and your Republicans in Congress, you know, couldn't do it. And so it's a total trap for Republicans, not Democrats. It's a total trap for Republicans who will never because the budget is so fantastical and unrealistic. And yet you have things like, um, you know, the national somebody I can't remember who was writing in the National Review who gave the president credit for at least trying to balance the budget in 10 years. So if he's getting credit for that, he can say, you know, the National Review gave me credit for trying to balance the budget in 10 years, even though the math to balance the budget relies on, you know, teams of unicorns hauling carts of gold to Washington. So that's the first thing is it's a trap for Republicans who are going to have to manage this. And then the second is the way in which this creates a situation for members of the White House to go out and say things that are that damage their credibility, not just you know, the president. So in this case, Mick Mulvaney is on board for all of this. But we've seen in the last several weeks situations where whether it's Rod Rosenstein or H.R. McMaster or the vice president have said things out loud that the president has then undercut and that make them seem less credible than they were before. In this case, it's different than that, but it is adding another person to the credibility challenge, which is when Mick Mulvaney basically says, well, the numbers don't add up because it's hard to kind of project. It's a crazy statement just to explain quickly why the numbers don't add up. The White House counts the revenue benefits of tax cuts both to say that its tax cuts are revenue neutral and then it takes the same revenue benefit from tax cuts and explains why then growth will create revenue that then allows the budget to balance in 10 years. So they're counting it twice. That's bad and and they've been lampooned for that. But then to hear Mick Mulvaney try and explain that $2 trillion math error with a kind of weak – explanation hurts his credibility and it's just a way in which this budget will never go anywhere but that explanation will live on emily so one thing that is amazing about this budget is the incredible dishonesty of it i mean some of it's the dishonesty of big cuts to ssdi social security disability insurance in the budget at the same time the president has said we're not going to cut social security that's part of the social security program that's one big form of dishonesty another is it projects 3% economic growth for the U.S. economy, a number that nobody thinks is remotely achievable. And then once you – if you project 3% economic growth, the unicorns breed themselves at that point. The unicorns are, are – uh, they practically take over South Carolina by then. And then finally, the one John just talked about, this this double counting of tax cuts, which is a $2 trillion error in their favor – we talked about voodoo economics during the Reagan years. This is like an entire zombie plague compared to the voodoo economics. How do citizens and how do 
how does the country deal with with a government that's willing to be so incredibly dishonest about such a fundamental aspect of governance, which is the true telling of numbers and of true projections? Right. I mean, the country should be afraid. And I think that the White House is counting on the conservative media not to call its errors and to let the spin turn this into one more thing that's like he said, she said, oh, this is divisive and polarizing instead of like this just doesn't make sense or add up. And to that And it is discouraging to hear Mulvaney, I believe, or maybe Republicans in Congress, it probably was Mulvaney, say, oh, this is really hardly going to have any effect on people who receive Medicaid, as if $880 billion in cuts was a small amount. In fact, the Medicaid numbers are projected to drop by half in the next several years. So there's all this chicanery you were talking about, and then there's the minimizing of the impact on the people who really would be harmed by this budget if it were ever to pass. John Boehner talked about false prophets when he left the House speakership, and the uh, argument behind that was that there were Republicans who knew better, who were nevertheless putting forward a story about what was actually possible in Washington, and that that story created unreasonable and insane pressure on Republicans, and that that's what essentially this budget is prepared to do, which is the fake numbers, we can talk about them in the way that we have, but in the political context, again, it puts this enormous pressure on Republicans by creating a false sense of what's actually possible. And when they inevitably fall short of that, because they have to create a budget that works in the real world, and by the way, that also can pass and get 60 votes in the the Senate, because Parts of the budget have to go through the appropriations process, which requires 60 votes in the Senate. It will never be this even remotely close to this budget. And that's, again, but, John. but that's what you were just saying, suggests there's a real political price for this. And so far, I don't think people have really uh, paid a, that price. There's definitely a political uh, price for Republicans who will be attacked by conservatives in the grassroots who say you weren't as brave as the president was. That's where the political price. Do, gets paid. I, I was actually, John, I was going to argue that it's a different place, which is that it, it, the real damage to Trump's approval ratings and actually to Republican approval ratings so far has been around actual policy, the, the kind of the, the, the health care bill, the health care bill, notably, and the and, and the um, the travel ban secondarily, but the health care bill primarily. And it seems to me that this budget, whether or not it becomes remotely possible to pass something like it, whether any of its proposals go into effect, this just gives the grassroots left, just another opportunity to really, really hammer on conservatives for substantive reasons rather than for the Russia stuff or the emolument stuff, which are terrible and criminal. But this is terrible policy, which will actually harm people. And and I think in the long run, that's worse for conservatives and Republicans than the FBI stuff is. So I would disagree for two reasons. First of all, the FBI stuff is a different matter. The reason this, the politics works out the way that I've described it and rather as just something for Democrats to be upset about is Democrats are already plenty upset. There's, you can't get any more upset than they are. Well, no, but I mean, you need a hook to grab onto. The difference between this and You need a hook to hold onto. The difference between this and healthcare is this is going to go away in five minutes because the appropriations process and the budget process will be taken over by the House as opposed to the healthcare bill, which was a long multi-week process. So this, no, after we stop talking about it, everybody will stop talking about it. So, and secondarily, we know that the Democrats are going to, f- can find and will be given whatever it may be reason to be angry. The reason the president continues to behave in the way he does is the feedback mechanism from his own base. And the reason Republicans are 
sticking with the president to the extent they are is because they worry about his power within his own base, because in off-year elections, the bases tend to vote more than the middle-of-the-road voter. So we'll see how that's changing. It's obviously energy and the base of the Democratic Party is making races competitive in places they shouldn't be. But that's already one thing we know this year. The battle that we saw in April when there was a mini little revolt when Republicans in the Congress agreed to a continuing resolution that didn't have money for the wall and that didn't have some of the other stuff the president wanted, there was a mini revolt from the grassroots saying, wait a minute, we we voted for Trump and now there's this huge sellout. That will get bigger when it gets to not being just a continuing resolution that was like a one-day story, but a huge budget that's going to have to be voted on, appropriations bills that are going to have to be voted on. And that's the newer kind of damage. We already knew about Democrats being energized. It's this kind of crack in the conservatives versus the sort of Trump versus Congress crack that's bigger and likely to be more exploited in an off-year election of the kind that we've had for the last few. So, John, what are the real political consequences of that? Because these are voters who could decide to stay home, and I suppose they could bring primary challenges, but it's not like they're moving over to support the Democratic candidate. So if you're in a safe House district, this isn't the reason why you feel less safe in 2018, right? Well, it depends on the district. It'll probably play out in a couple of different ways. If you're in one of the 24 districts that voted for Hillary Clinton, this budget plus the ultimate budget that will come through among Republicans, you could benefit in two ways if you're a Democrat, which is one, the base won't turn out because they'll just be disappointed. And then the, the more moderates will be offended by the budget itself. So in those districts, it's probably good for Democrats in that way. In other places, you could have primary challenges. Absolutely. It leads to people aren't excited to write checks. There was already a transference problem, which is to say that the base that Donald Trump has is not the base that the Republican candidate in whatever congressional district has. There are two worries. One, that they won't turn out for you. That's going to be a problem throughout, and it's exacerbated by this budget. But the second problem is that President Trump would turn that base on you, as he threatened to do with the the Freedom Caucus after the first health care bill went down. So I think it plays out differently in different in different districts. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, let's turn to the CBO score of the American Healthcare Act, which also came out this week. It came out on Wednesday, and it was essentially the same as it had been for the earlier version of the bill. It said that 23 million Americans would lose their health insurance by 2026, 14 million 
would lose it next year. It also said that it would fundamentally destabilize the individual insurance market in a sixth of the country, putting lots of people with pre-existing conditions in danger of, of uh, losing their ability to get insurance. Emily, is this as devastating for this version of the bill as it was for the last version of the bill? I mean, it should be. It's the, basically the same result. And the notion that this the last minute Fred upped an amendment that was supposed to help people with pre-existing conditions by creating it was $8 billion for high-risk pools. That seems to have a very minimal effect on actually making sure that people with pre-existing conditions will be able to afford their health insurance. So, I mean, I just think this bill has almost all of the problems of the last bill and some new ones. And, you know, if people are trying to judge whether they're going to be able to have access to health care they can actually afford, a lot of people are going to be thrown off. And I, yeah, I don't see how the politics have really changed. It, I suppose this could strengthen the hand of senators who say that they're writing their own bill. I'm curious, what did you guys think about Mark Meadows one night this week being confronted by someone who has a pre-existing condition and starting to talk in an emotional way about his own relatives who've had cancer and kind of making promises that I'm going to make sure that nobody gets hurt. And I, I understand, like, what is that? Is he finally confronting the real harm's way that he's putting people in? Or was that some kind of performance? It just is, I I just really, truly did not know what to make of it. John? I didn't actually see it, but let me grab the pre-existing condition piece, which is the president guaranteed that people would be covered by pre-existing conditions. And one of the things that's damaging about the CBO report that's kind of damaging afresh as opposed to what we already knew is that it basically says that the promises made by the president and those who support the American Health Care Act that people with pre-existing conditions would still be covered is decimated by the CBO report. And their argument is the one that that was asked about before the thing was passed, which is that prices, because of the flexibility given to the states, people will end up getting priced out. Uh, the premiums will be too high for people with pre-existing conditions, that there is not an ironclad guarantee in the bill. And therefore, uh, there will be a lot of people with pre-existing conditions who are out of luck. And Meadows may have been saying, I understand and I feel this and I and as a result, we're going to protect those people. But the problem is protecting them is expensive. And also the guarantees of the kind that would make sure they were protected and protected in this case means not just having access, but actual access to affordable care are the kinds of mandates and prescriptions from the federal level that Meadows and others wanted stripped from the bill because they believe those mandates are what drive up costs. So it's one of the many problems that they're in, locked in with this piece of legislation. And then we should just note that the CBO score and that undermining of what was supposed to be an improved piece of the bill between its first and second version, well, first and second major version, has actually made it worse, right? So that this pre-existing condition, which is popular, is now even more brought into question. The Senate is just not going to bother with any of this. Like, they're they're going to move on. Now, how they then reconcile that with what happened in the House is a huge problem and mystery. But just to the extent that it, the health bill coming out of the House was already pretty much dead on arrival in the Senate, this added a few more terminal aspects to it. Is being dead on arrival a pre-existing condition? I think it has been a pre-existing condition with both of these bills. John, you used the word mystery to describe what the Senate is doing. That's a good word because it appears that the House, uh, excuse me, that Senate Republicans are doing whatever legislation drafting they're doing in, in secret and without Democrats involved and that they are going to drop a bill one of these days and try to quickly pass it without it subjecting it to a lot of 
uh, keen analysis or murderboarding it at all. Is that going to achieve a better result than than the same strategy pursued in the House? It seems well, unlikely. Well, it does seem unlikely, I think, for um, a couple of reasons. One, I think it may still be true. This may be a maxim in life, which is that if your process is a mess, then the outcome is a mess. And the process was a mess in the, Senate, in the House because they were trying to basically make two groups that were fundamentally at odds happy with a bill through a process that allowed the bill to come through to be able to pass through reconciliation in the Senate, meaning that it only needs a majority vote, not a 60-vote threshold. As a result of trying to meet all of those masters or, or um, satisfy all those masters, they made this ugly bill come out of the House. They're doing a version of the same thing in the Senate. Um, when you do it in private and quiet, it's not going to lead to a great outcome. So they may get something that they put forward in the Senate. But it will have two problems. One is the Democrats in the Senate, but that's okay. They only need a majority to pass it in the Senate. But they will need the Democratic senators someday down the line to add things to health care that might improve the lives of some of the people who are hurt by the stuff that will be passed through the first effort here. That's the White House theory. That's even the White House theory about how to fix the flaws in the House bill. And that bill would need to have to pass a 60-vote threshold. So how are you going to get those Democratic votes if you exacerbate their anger in the first stage? Second thing is anything that comes out of the Senate is going to have to be reconciled through the House. And anything that's done in secret in the Senate, there are going to be a lot of House uh, members who say, you know, they had the secretive Senate process and it created a bill that's going to you know, be bad for reasons X, Y, and Z. So they can attack the process. In the same way that Rand Paul went to the secret place that the House Republicans were crafting the bill during one of the stages of this drama and said, you know, they're not letting us see it. It's being done in secret and they're hoodwinking you. In the meantime, we have the Obamacare exchanges starting to really look shaky in large part because of these unresolved uncertainties about whether the Trump administration is going to continue to release money to pay for the subsidies people get to afford insurance. And so there's a way in which the existing structure is becoming more and more at risk. And Republicans, of course, want to blame that on Obamacare and on the Democrats, but it's on their watch. It's adding, at least to my anxiety level about all of this, because if you think that all of this bill passing could just come to naught, you have to worry about even if the worst parts of the bills don't pass, what we have seems like it just seems vulnerable in more and more states. Right. Lindsey Graham this week, who's a normally among the least extreme Republican senators, said after seeing the CBO score, well, it looks like our strategy is now to let Obamacare die and and then do something after that. The so-called collapse and replace. Yeah, it's collapse and replace, right? That's the term. Emily, let's wrap this by shoehorning a totally separate topic in, but there was this incredible moment on Wednesday when a reporter for The Guardian, Ben Jacobs, asked Republican House candidate in Montana, Greg Gianforte, about the CBO score. Here's a person running for a special in a special election. The voting is today, Thursday. And uh, Jacobs wanted Jen Forte's thoughts on this extremely important piece of legislation. And Jen Forte apparently turned on Jacobs and throttled him and assaulted him and broke his glasses all on live tape, all in front of witnesses. And now come Thursday morning is news that Jen Forte has been charged, I think, with assault. Is that right? He's been charged, misdemeanor assault. charged with yes, misdemeanor assault misdemeanor on the day assault. of the election with 60 percent of the votes already cast from early voting. What does this represent? Does this represent some part of a broader assault on the press? Is this just one terrible, irrational candidate? And we always there are a lot of people like that in the House, and we shouldn't be surprised. 
Right. Well, one person at the end of a campaign completely lost his temper. He mentioned in the altercation with Jacobs, oh, the Guardian, you guys have been doing this before. And a month ago, Jacobs had written a story linking Gianforte to investments in Russian companies that wasn't good for Gianforte's campaign. So you do wonder if there's like a real animosity here. And it was heartening to me on Thursday morning that newspapers in Montana that had endorsed Gianforte withdrew their endorsements. But this is awfully late in the campaign for it to determine the outcome. And I fear that within like 24 hours, the story is going to be one that is going to be about like exaggerated concern for this reporter and and that it's, you know, conservative media will start hitting back and saying either this didn't happen the way it seems like it clearly did, according to the witnesses, or that, well, it's just this one altercation has nothing to do with President Trump or the kind of general atmosphere of press bashing that he has encouraged. And to me, it seems like it's inseparable, though I do recognize that it is just one incident. How did you guys respond? But it's yeah, I don't I think it's not inseparable. I mean, we've seen these incidents repeatedly. There was the a couple of weeks ago where the reporter trying to ask Tom Price a question in West Virginia was arrested for asking a question. There was another reporter, I now can't remember where it was, who was arrested and, and sort of attacked for trying to ask a question. And Trump, of course, his own rhetoric is incredibly violent towards the media and called them the enemy of the people. I mean, that's that's as close as you can get it's Nazi era language on it. So I think it, this is this is really concerning. I mean, it's good that this guy's been charged and it's it's good that it's getting so much attention. But as a citizen, I worry about it. I don't think we have to convince the GabFest audience that the, the value of a free and independent and pushy press. But I think it's it's very concerning that so many people in power in America become skeptical about that. This obviously was not grace under pressure. Two things that uh, struck me. One is that Jacobs was there. You know, one of the big complaints people have about the press is that um, the press should stick to the issues. He was there asking about the CBO score and the healthcare policy. I right. mean, so there was a bit of a history here, which doesn't really matter. He was asking a pretty straightforward question about healthcare. The second thing, though, to me is that the lie... Um, that was issued about what happened in the altercation yes. um, feels like the something to pay a lot of attention. So obviously this was not grace under pressure. The, you know, Gianforte should um, obviously deal with the law and the, and the ridicule and all of that. But we should all, you know, in moments of heated passion at the end of a long campaign, the press release put out afterwards was not in the same moment of passion. Somebody sat down and had to actually put words into a computer that were totally at odds with what happened, that were essentially a lie yeah. and not just a lie in the moment. Who among us has not said something stupid or lied to get ourselves out of a jam? This was carefully thought through total fiction, yep. disproved both by the audio recording at the moment and the eyewitness testimony or whatever eyewitness account of the From Fox the reporters. Fox News crew. And the easy way that lies, not just, not just normal spin, but actual crafting of things that are lies and not just self-delusion. There, you know, there are many different kinds of of deception. This was a straight up lie, and that seems to me in a number of places is getting 
people feel like that's easier to do. Again, not just spin, not just, oh, well, I have a different view of things, but an actual creation of, of things that are completely untrue. And this, there's a version of this that happened when House Republican staffers were presented with an account of, um, of that joke that uh, Kevin right. McCarthy, the majority leader, told about uh, President Trump being paid by the Russians. And the Post was told at first, didn't happen. Then it was told, we have five people who say it didn't happen. And then the reporter basically said, I have the tape. You should pay a bigger penalty for... A straight up lie. We've had the debate many, many, many different times about dissembling. But like when you yeah. straight up lie, it shouldn't it should be. John, that is beautifully. That is really beautifully said. And I would note that there is no price that Kevin McCarthy has borne no price for that lie. Those staffers who lied for him have borne no price. Paul Ryan has borne no price. So it is we can want that price to, to be high, but it, it's not being born. OK, before we move on, we got some business First of all, what is our Slate Plus topic today, you ask? Yes, you do. The Slate Plus topic, designed just for John Dickerson, is what work should you be forced to do? Where should you be compelled to visit? What experience should you be required to have before you are allowed to run for president? So we're going to tell future presidential candidates what they need to do. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to get that extra bonus content and a lot of other stuff. Second thing is that our political GabFest live in Denver is just two weeks away. We just have to cross the sand hills of Nebraska to get the wagon train, get the wagon train just up to the base of the, the Rockies to Denver on Wednesday, June 7th at the Robert and Judy Newman Center for the Performing Arts. We are going to be live there. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. And the Exciting news is that Governor John Hickenlooper, Hicken, <laughs> it sounds like some like Victorian era, um, like vocation. <laughs> he was a they, we, first we go to the cobbler, then we go to the butcher, then we go to the Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper, uh, the governor of Colorado, is going to be our guest. He's a goofy, charming guy. He would not mind his name being made fun of, I'm sure. So come see Governor Hickenlooper with us Wednesday, June 7th, slate.com slash live for tickets. See you in Denver. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. President Trump had his maybe his best week as president. He enjoyed a week of sword dancing, arms dealing and orb groping in Saudi Arabia, a mutual fondling with Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, an awkward photo opportunity with the Pope, and then a, now a visit to the NATO summit. By Trump standards, it was basically gaffe free, except for the part where he bowed to the Saudi king, the stumbling over the word Islamic in a speech, the blatant self-dealing by his daughter, the press conference by the Secretary of State barring American reporters, the creepy orb ceremony, the ditching of the Masada visit because he couldn't land his helicopter there, his breezy note at Israel's Holocaust Museum, his obtusely revealing that Israel was the source of the intelligence he leaked to the Russians. All those are really, by Trump standards, those are just minor things, little grape nuts in a, in a grand cereal bowl of life. But for him, it was a total <laughs> triumph. John... Why was this trip a success by Trumpian standards, or was it? Well, it, it, yeah, one of the challenges in, the, in a modern moment is is having the context through which we evaluate things. I think 
the particularly the speech in Saudi Arabia, you may not you may disagree, and there are people on the left and the right who disagree with the highly realist approach to foreign policy that he outlined in that speech. But if you go back and compare it to, you know, President Obama in Cairo in 2009, this was a new president with a worldview going to a symbolically interesting place and putting forward that worldview in a way that by the standards of international, these kinds of trips and the showcraft and stagecraft of those trips was perfectly reasonable. You know, he got uh, some Muslim nations to speak out against extremism. He delivered a speech that recognized the complexities of the moment. Again, you may totally disagree with the ideology here, but uh, that I by do. the standards of the last, the previous weeks that had come before it in which the president where there were hints of obstruction of justice and then he gave exhibits A, B, and C in proof that there was not proof that there was obstruction of justice, but I mean, he basically made his case a thousand times worse. So relative to that standard, this was a, um, so, but that's the, the show stagecraft. I mean, obviously there are the contradictions that you mentioned. The, President Trump said as a campaigner that when President Obama went to Cairo in 2009, because he didn't mention radical uh, or, or Islamic terrorism, um, that that was proof that he didn't understand uh, that he was weak and that he didn't understand the situation in the Middle East. So he is guilty of the same thing. He said that the Clinton Foundation should never take in donations from the Saudis. His daughter's foundation now has. He said that Michelle Obama should have worn a headscarf and that not doing so was disrespectful. Melania Trump didn't wear one either. And then finally, he said Saudi Arabia was responsible for the attacks of 9-11. He obviously didn't bring that up. So there's a great deal of distance between the candidate and the man. And so the argument from the White House is, oh, well, they knew they didn't take him literally. But I wonder if Muslims not at the heads of government nevertheless took him seriously when he suggested banning Muslims as a part of his campaign. So obviously, this was a, a very different president than um, and, and that suggests really that this was just show, you know, what's the underlying actual view. There's also this this I think this natural phenomenon when you when you have somebody you have a relative who's hugely embarrassing and they're when you're in the privacy of your own home and you're, you're perfectly willing to berate this relative and to kind of talk about how terrible they are to their face and but once everyone's out in public and you're, you know, you're at church, you're at the the recital, you're meeting other people, you don't want to hum humiliate this person because you don't want yourself, you don't want your own country to be humiliated, humiliated by proxy. And I think there is this way in which all Americans are invested in the president, even a president whom we disagree with, not looking like an idiot when he's traveling and not doing anything that's going to embarrass us. And we're not going to emphasize the way in which he embarrasses us while he's visiting foreign relatives as he has been visiting them. By that standard, the country wants foreign trips to be a success. And I actually think what we're going to see out of this is that Trump is going to have enjoyed this trip a lot and will probably plan lots of other foreign trips because he gets treated with dignity. These other countries want to suck up to him and bribe him because he's the American president. And, uh, you know, there's lots of honor and he he likes ceremony he likes opulence he likes he likes the the hoo-ha and the the, the foo-for-all of a visit and i bet he'll do more of it it's probably a lot more fun than actually governing he's a much more a ceremonial head of state kind of person what do we think about the geopolitics that were underlying his speech and the kind of turn towards Saudi Arabia, away from Iran, you know, this really hard line on Iran and attempt to isolate Iran, but then also trying to pull Saudi Arabia into the Israeli-Palestinian peace process in a way that seems unlikely to actually go anywhere. But um, it, it was that sort of deal-making again, where you put 
somebody or in this case a country on the spot and expect that shaking things up is going to change things in the region. I think it's a worthy gambit. I mean, it's not exactly like this region has uh, been an easy and simple one to solve. It is the furtherance of a theory, again, with which you may disagree, but um, a long-planned effort to go, you know, there's the symbolic importance of going to Saudi Arabia, obviously confers upon Saudi Arabia legitimacy and respect. Obviously, he didn't talk about human rights and he's not going to with countries like Egypt, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Turkey. Their argument is it's better to do it in private than, of course, the questions raised about how much they actually do do it in private. But that turn towards a super realist approach and the idea that basically this is a different way to put pressure on Iran, you know, at least there's a there's a theory behind it. I don't I'm not smart enough about the Middle East to know whether there are, are dangers to doing that. But it's not like there's a super simple other approach that you're um, supposed to take. So I thought it well, was at there, least that approach is the approach that President Obama took, which was right. which was to say, let's try to get Iran back in the community of nations. Let's create a sort of rather than having a Saudi hegemony or an Iranian hegemony, let's kind of play them off against each other within this world. And to play, you know, not, to, play, play to play to play the Saudi sort of Sunni power center, the one uh, weight on the scale in the Middle East, and then the Shiite center that Iran represents is another. And that those two, rather than saying we pick a side, the side we picked is the Saudis, we're saying we're going to play with everybody and nudge everyone. I think that and, you, and I and I, I mean, just sorry to, to no, continue. No, no. I mean, this is a point I've made 50 million times on the show, but Saudi Arabia, which is a, you know, is a theocratic government anti-democratic government that has is terrible on the rights of women is exports a an appalling theology of wahhabism and funds it all over the world a, a source of which is its source of of radicalization throughout much of the islamic world to pick that side and to say that that's the side we want to be on seems totally bizarre and perverse when you have an iran which is no you know iran is no saint but iran is a more democratic country it's a country which is intrinsically aligned much more towards moderation it's aligned it's not simply a, an oil country it's a country that has an economy which isn't totally based on oil it it is a it's a country that does a lot of trade and to, to sort of just try to isolate iran and crush iran and instead lift up this this other appalling country seems to me a total error uh, the relativism between the two is a tricky place to be in, but I think the I think you can argue the country over which the United States in this argument. I mean, the, the challenge to the Obama approach would be that when you play all sides, you play no side, and that in this case, the the Trump administration appears to have decided we have more leverage over the Saudis, either leverage because we can bestow upon them a first visit from a president, or leverage from the fact that we are a market, or leverage from you know the needs of U.S. arms. Or whatever other kinds of leverage that that uh, they think they have, whereas over Iran they have the U.S. has limited leverage. And so you what's exercise, the leverage? What do we do with the leverage with Saudi Arabia? What, well, you argue that you you I think, and we'll see if these things pay off. But I think the argument from them would be a you try to build a Muslim coalition against extremism, and that you stop at least the funding that would have come from countries like Saudi Arabia. Qatar is the, the much trickier problem here, but potentially put pressure on Qatar to stop funding ISIS, to stop using the money made from petroleum to fund extremism, and that you 
you raise up the idea that it is a responsibility of, and this was part of what President Obama's speech in 2009 in Cairo was about, was that you make it the responsibility of the Middle Eastern world to take care of this extremism themselves. Again, it may not work, but that's the I mean, that's I th- the goal. And I, I think, think you have it exactly backward, John. That we don't have leverage over them; they have leverage over us. I, well, you you impute the. My views. I'm trying to describe what the administration is. That's their view of things. Right. But they. I think the, um, the point is that. So the, you can say the administration. The administration has it exactly backward. This, the, the Saudis have leverage over us. We've just given them a blank check to to continue their war in Yemen and to the war crimes they're committing there. We've given them a huge amount of arms well, that where they're free to do what they want with. And we've essentially said, because we're so aligned against Iran, you guys can do whatever the fuck you want. In the Middle East, because right. we picked your side. That's right. No, and, that's that is what we said, um, and the, that was the that was being said about Yemen beforehand. By the way, I mean it wasn't that isn't new with this administration. That no, is that's worse. exactly what it's, I mean. It's certainly yeah, adding yeah. to the problem the Obama that's, administration has exactly, not addressed. It and it that's that's exactly what they're saying, and that's exactly what the Trump administration is saying to China. They're saying basically, we're not going to bother you on human rights or intellectual property rights or what you're doing in the South China Sea because we need your help. With North Korea. That's precisely what they're doing. And the, the irony of them doing this, the week that Iran reelects Hassan Rouhani, who's a relatively moderate leader in, in dem- free right. and open democratic elections. It's ironic. Emily, what do you make of the Israel leg of this trip? Did you think that Trump has, you know, has made a breakthrough in Israeli-Palestinian peace uh, negotiations? Well, you're sort of laughing. I mean, this was the one thing that where I agree with John that this idea of tra- of saying to the Israelis, "Look, you know, if we're going to have peace in the Middle East, it's going to start with you working things out with the Palestinians, and I want the Saudis to play a prominent role here." That does not seem crazy to me. That does seem like a road that, in theory, would be good to walk down. I just see no evidence that the Trump administration would do what it would take to force Bibi Netanyahu to actually walk down that road. There's also the problem of what Palestinian leadership there actually is to deal with and the just like continuing deteriorating human rights situation in the West Bank. So... Yeah, I mean, I felt like that one was one where if you could imagine them really sustaining and paying attention, that actually Trump's approach might have some benefits. But I just can't imagine that it is going to be given that kind of energy and that he'll really stick with it. And it also just seemed like what we were seeing underneath all of that was that, you know, a lot of Israelis who are nervous about the way the world is changing, who fear Iran, just want to get behind this American president. So again, like who really has leverage over who and and what what would we really use it for? John, one final question, which is a really a media question, which is during much of the last week when I've been at the gym or something flipped on the television, the news channels had wall to wall coverage of Trump at the Western Wall. Trump, you know, with an orb, Trump sword dancing. I do not recall that being the case with earlier presidential trips. Is this just an example of where Trump is special because he, the media interest in the presidency is so extreme? Um, I think the it's probably part of that. But I think a first presidential trip does get a lot of coverage. Secondarily, I think a first presidential trip in this super complicated part of the world the Cairo trip that I was talking about with Pre- that President Obama took got a great deal of coverage. It wasn't his first foreign trip, I don't believe, but it was obviously an important trip because they had said he is going to frame 
this argument about the Middle East in a specific and interesting way. Everybody go pay attention. Everybody knew it was worth paying attention to. And this is the same thing. Right. This is a president who's not just taking a trip for nothing. This is a gambit. This is a theory about the way the Middle East works. And we already talked about the power reframing he's trying to do with respect to Iran, but then also with respect to the Israel-Palestinian issue. And then also more broadly, his attempt to write. And by the way, he's going to, he's got a NATO visit and a G7 visit. Like that's also quite big, a bit, quite a big deal. And, and by the way, there are a lot of people who think that he's gotten the NATO countries to chip in more the NATO donations to NATO is a bit was a big deal for the Obama administration either also. But there are a lot of people who think, you know, people like Henry Kissinger and former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, who believe that Trump's rhetoric on NATO has made them pay up faster than and been more effective in getting member countries to pay up than President Obama's was. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, Emily, a strange Supreme Court coalition knocked down two North Carolina congressional districts for their unconstitutional racial gerrymandering this week. Tell us about that case. This case is called Cooper versus Harris, and it was a challenge to two congressional districts drawn in North Carolina after the 2010 census. One of the districts, the legislature in North Carolina, the people redrawing the line, said, we are putting more black voters into this district because we think we have to do that to satisfy the Voting Rights Act. The court was unanimous in striking down that district, saying that simply arguing that the Voting Rights Act forces you to pack more voters into a district is just wrong, that you have to prove that you actually need to do that in order to help Black voters elect the candidates of their choice. And there really wasn't that history in that district. That was District 1 in North Carolina. And then there was District 12, where there had been a much more kind of contested set of testimony about whether the district was redrawn to add more Black voters because they were packing in um, Black voters or because they were trying to achieve a partisan advantage. Now, if you didn't know anything about this area of law, you might think, well, that doesn't sound so great either. Why can either party try to stuff as many voters, as you know, in this case, as many Democrats, and to take them out of neighboring districts and make those districts safer for Republicans? But we have this really weird state of the law right now where the court looks askance at race-based gerrymandering, but has been very reluctant to intervene when there's partisan gerrymandering. And so that's why there was all this question of whether District 12 was drawn for partisan advantage or, again, to satisfy the Voting Rights Act. 
And the district court judge, so like the trial court judge who heard all the evidence, said he thought that race was the predominant factor and he struck down the district. And so a majority of four liberals on the court, plus Justice Clarence Thomas, said that they were going to defer to that district court's judgment that this District 12 looked to them based on the trial testimony and that judge's reading of the testimony, that it it had indeed been drawn for predominantly race-based reasons. And so it was also unconstitutional. If you think it's weird that Thomas was the fifth vote in this case, it's really not. Justice Thomas has been very consistent. He does not think that race should be a factor in drawing district lines at all, whoever's doing it. And so he wants to raise the bar to allowing legislators to take race into account. And the sort of Bigger questions this case raises, I guess, there are a few. One of them is... Um, Wait, he doesn't think... Sorry, does, Emily, Emily. I didn't understand that. Can I just okay. ask a question? So yep. you just said that Thomas thought they shouldn't take race into account and that legislatures could then use race to draw the lines? No, no. Sorry, the opposite. So Thomas believes that legislators should not take race into account in drawing the lines. He does never bought the idea that the Voting Rights Act means that you can either justify putting more black voters into a district to make it easier for them to elect their candidates or that you can put more black voters into a district to make it easier to elect Republicans outside the district. Right. He just doesn't whoever's doing it, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, whatever they're doing based on race and redistricting, he doesn't like that idea. So so you're accusing him of consistency? Yes, that is, yes. I am complimenting him. Wait, does it follow from that that he doesn't believe that partisan redistricting is okay or he just thinks that race is a category you can't use to... Just, he thinks partisan redistricting is fine. He does not want the court to interfere on the basis of partisan redistricting at all. He wants the political process left alone. And you could argue that actually that's consistent too because he's saying that the Voting Rights Act... So so let's like back up a second. So we have the Voting Rights Act from 19... And one of the more familiar ways that it matters is this question of, like, can you make it harder for minorities to vote by, like, closing polling places or taking away early voting days, right? There's that whole set of challenges. And then there's a question of, okay, when legislators redistrict, what kind of responsibilities do they have under the Voting Rights Act? And it used to be, back in the 90s, that essentially— Republicans and some black elected officials in Congress and the legislature kind of had this like unholy alliance where they were agreeing to pack black voters into certain districts so that there would be safe candidates, um, Democrats, usually minority candidates who would get elected safely. And then everywhere else in the state, it would be easier for Republicans to win. And Democrats and the Justice Department pushed this for a long time. And the theory behind it was that you had to have a lot of black voters in a district in order for black voters to elect their candidate of choice. And so that was a good thing. And conservatives complained about this because they thought these districts were becoming too safe. Now we have this sort of changing picture where a lot of Democrats want more of what are called crossover districts, districts where you have like a plurality of black voters. And then you have a bunch of white voters who can also be counted on to sometimes support the candidate of the black voters choice. I mean, it's like a much more sort of happy vision of the country where people are just voting based on political or policy preference, not based on racial bias. 
And so the question was, well, what was going to happen to the Supreme Court's approach to redistricting under the Voting Rights Act in a world of crossover districts? And so now we know that the court is interested in crossover districts and wants to make space for them. And that is helps drive this, this, this decision. It will matter mostly in other states in the South, where there's a really strong alignment between party preference and race. It, but in the world of partisan redistricting, which matters much more in states like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania and Missouri, we're still in like a separate legal lawland over there with a different set of questions. And that is kind of, in my view, crazy that we have this whole set of rules we have about race-based gerrymandering, and yet the court has been very reluctant to ever address partisan gerrymandering. So, you know, if you were starting over again from scratch, I don't think you would get where we are now. I mean, there are lots of reasons why the Democratic Party is unbelievably weak in the South as a statewide party. And throughout the South. But I think the the racial redistricting is a key one that it's basically has made in the eyes of a lot of white Southerners, it's made the Democratic Party, the party of black people. And it's exacerbated and calcified this this kind of division that was already, there are there are other reasons there are other reasons why it's happening. But it's this was, as you said, a kind of devil's bargain that that was made a generation ago, which I think Democrats in general now regret or they ought to regret. Well, there's a lot of switching sides over like who wants race-based redistricting and what should it look like, right? I mean, in North Carolina, 65% of white voters usually vote Republican, but that means there are 35% who vote Democratic. And so that does leave more room for these crossover districts. And so it's probably just like generally good news that the Supreme Court has made it clear that the Voting Rights Act doesn't bar states from creating crossover districts. In fact, if you go too far to dismantle crossover districts, you can get in trouble. The, the longer time one spends with us, the more you get to the point, which is this: all these districts are disgusting and it needs to be done in a completely neutral way because any any sort of yes. planning simply becomes used for partisan purposes and find people find a way to use it for partisan purposes. Talk- well, right. And that's the problem, really, right? That like, and this is why partisan gerrymandering is so difficult for the courts to address. So the Constitution gives the legislatures, the power to draw these lines, not the courts. And only in a couple of states have the states been sensible enough to take that power away from purely partisan line drawers and give it to like a bipartisan, more neutral commission that's just going to go in and in a more sensible fashion, draw these lines. And then to sort of... But and also the only states where that happened, Emily, are states which are Democratic states. Yeah, right. And so Iowa it, it, so it, it California. Makes, oh, it does I, oh, Iowa has it. Okay, I take it back. I think so. The problem is partisan line drawing gets you to these like crazy shaped districts where you can see that essentially because computer programming has become so sophisticated, whoever is in charge, and usually in a lot of contested states lately, it's been Republicans, they're really maximizing their own political partisan strength beyond what would make sense in any kind of sensible drawing of lines that would actually like make the representative align well with the community that they were 
serving. And so there's a case coming out of Wisconsin that could get to the Supreme Court next year that is about this problem in which I think a computer scientist and maybe an economist have gotten together and proposed an actual measure for partisan gerrymandering going too far. It's called the efficiency gap. And they've kind of ginned up this case expressly for Justice Kennedy. It also has a kind of First Amendment theory in it, which to me is like a weird way to go at partisan gerrymandering. But Kennedy suggested in an opinion a few years ago that maybe he kind of liked this idea. So that's like all on the horizon. But again, it just this is a, a kind of crazy like a patchwork legal creature we've created here because we have this fundamental problem that redistricting is generally partisan in the United States. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John Dickerson, when you are risking arrest by drinking uh, smuggled hooch in a Saudi hotel, what will you be chattering about? I'm chattering about a book called The Book of Amazing History, which is a book I found... um, Randomly, and it has lots and lots of little entries about uh, random and amusing things in in history. And so it's uh, it's fun if you like that kind of thing. But the one entry that I found particularly amusing because it told me two things I didn't know, which is uh, well, I'm constantly being surprised by history. First is that it has um, it talks about the invention of the elevator, and that the first. You got to be careful with this book because it feels like some of the times it says things that may not be strictly speaking, precisely right. But anyway, the first elevator that carried a human being was at Versailles in 1743, and it was known as the flying chair. And the pulleys and weights of this elevator were put into service for the purpose of of taking mistresses up to Louis XV. In other accounts, it's not clear whether the mistresses were carried in the flying chair or whether Louis XV was, because the the point of having a chair was, A, not so you wouldn't be seen in public, right? You could just be delivered quietly to uh, to the appropriate room. But then the other was, in another reading, was that because uh, Louis was such a corpulent uh, person, going up and down all those stairs left him exhausted and therefore unable to perform the final uh, scene in the narrative for which he was engaging the the elevator. Anyway, that's one thing which somebody can write in and tell us some other part of excellent piece of um, history about the flying chair. But the other is that um, uh, Elijah Otis, which is the creator of the Otis Elevator, which every time you go into an elevator, you notice it's made by the Otis Company, or it feels that way anyway. My favorite thing about that is that when it was fir- when the elevators were first created, there was an article in Scientific American about how the human body couldn't go too fast. And there used to be elevator speed limits about um, – now I feel like I'm doing an Atlas Obscura piece. But anyway, that there were elevator speed limits because they, the idea was that it would lead to all kinds of ailments if you went too fast. Just as it was once thought that if you rode on a train too fast, that passengers would be choked by the oxygen that was being pushed away from their from their mouths. Uh, the other thing, obviously, was safety. And so what Otis did to add to his fame and, um, and prove to everybody that you could have elevators, which then, of course, led to, obviously, opulent hotels in which you could go to higher floors. It used to be a sign of your poverty that you were up on a top floor because you had to hoof it up there. Um, and obviously it made possible things like the Empire State Building, which had Otis elevators, but that he um, used to hold public events at which he would take his hoisting apparatus and show people. And then he would cut with an ax the rope holding the hoisting apparatus and it would plunge, but only about three feet before these springs would engage and keep it from falling. I, uh, anyway, 
I would love to see a set of videos or book or something about the demonstrations that old-timey inventors used to do in that vein. Because there were mm-hmm. always, like, wasn't Tesla or Edison was always exhibiting AC electricity. And that it was safe. And that it was yeah. safe. And he was showing that, 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 that whatever the Tesla's DC was going to electrocute the dog. So they'd electrocute <laughs> the dog. This guy I wrote a book about who invented chatterproof plastic eyeglasses used to do these demonstrations where he'd hurl his eyeglasses up in the air and they would not shatter and people would be excited by that. But I'm sure there are just tons of great examples like that. And I wonder if the, if the last section of that great story about um, inventors and their moments of display ends with Steve Jobs, who brought it back into the right. into the current moment. Right, right. That's a story. Story for somebody. Okay. Free story Simon, idea. Simon Desk. Emily, what's your chatter? I am chattering this week about a story in the New York Times Magazine by Alec McGillis, who's just been doing such good work lately, about Jared Kushner. It is effectively showing Jared Kushner being a slumlord all over the country in housing complexes that are kind of on the edges of cities or suburbs, where a lot of people who Alec found are Trump supporters, live in these places. And the investment company that Kushner owns and, you know, still getting lots of money from, basically has a strategy of trying to wring every single amount of debt out of the people who live in these pretty low-income housing complexes, everything they can possibly get. So even if the landlord had agreed years ago to let someone move out if you and break their lease, if you don't can't find the piece of paper that allowed you to do that, even if this was before Kushner's company actually bought the property, they're going to come after you in court. They're essentially counting on people to not know how to defend themselves, which is often true in landlord-tenant cases. And so it was just this incredibly sad and mean approach to being a landlord where you see your tenants as people that you're just trying to like screw all the time. And Alec found a lot of examples of this. It's just really um, well done piece of journalism. And to connect it more generally with like bigger concerns other than Jared Kushner, if you read Evicted by Matt Desmond, the, a book that's won, I feel like every single prize this year and deservedly so, it's this is just part of this really difficult set of questions about affordable housing in this country and how much we are really expecting poor people to put up with and not even really poor people, just like the really tough conditions of having to rent if you don't have a lot of money in this country. It's just becoming something that affects more and more people, a lot of like hidden suffering going on. The one interesting point I I saw in that story that which had never occurred to me is that one reason why they seem to be so vicious in their pursuit of of people who don't pay or is that they want to prove to current tenants you better not try to get out of your lease. So a lot of right. it is, is or a, ask for anything is a way to get better behavior out of your current tenants to get make your current tenants less demanding, less likely to default, less likely to to jump a lease. So it it has it's it's not only cruel to the people who formerly were your tenants. It also has this mind control strategy for your current tenants. Right. And we should also say it's not wasn't just like tenants going around whimsically breaking leases. I mean, people were living with like dry rot and holes and, you know, under real conditions of subpar habitability of um, the places they were renting. My chatter today is one designed purely for you, John. It's not designed for you, but it was an experience I had, which was so Dickersonian that I thought I got to chatter about it. I went on Monday 
to the Old Crow Medicine Show concert? Did you go on Monday or Tuesday no, night? No. So Old Crow Medicine Show, which is a southern string band that plays uh, folk country. Sort of roots rocky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, have covered the Bob Dylan album Blonde on Blonde for his its, its 50th anniversary. And so they played a concert at the Lincoln Theater. It is incredible. The concert is great. They're just a tremendous live performers. They're buoyant and energetic and fun, and you just get, it gets your spirits up. But the the album, which is on Spotify, is lovely, and it's it's. I dare I say it. I think it's better than the original. <laughs> I enjoy it a lot more than the original, which I like quite a lot. But I cannot recommend that enough. If you get a chance to go listen to it, uh, listen to Old Crow Medicine Show covering Blonde on Blonde. Uh, and if you if they're coming to your town, go see them because it's really good. John, you should. The authors of the of Wagon Wheel, one of your uh, favorite songs, the originators of it, not the originators of it, the popularizers of it. But um, yeah, no, I was just looking at the um, at the tour dates and where they're playing. There was a moment when Hannah almost canceled on my, me as my date, and I was going to call you, but then she oh, uncanceled man. on me. <laughs> you should definitely go see yeah. it. John. you should definitely, definitely yeah, go see no, it. I'm, I'm... Looking at the schedule now. That is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced today by A.C. Valdez. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. To pose questions to us, to engage with us and other listeners, follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet at us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Join us for our Denver show. Tickets at Slate.com slash live. That's June 7th in Denver. That's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.